Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing drinks. I'm feeling a little thirsty. I want to reach out for a beverage. So I'm going to talk about a number of drinks. Some of them have brand names, some of them don't. So therefore, absolutely, we're going to have the conversation about kind of advertising and also what it is to be a human and all kinds of interesting things. So I've actually got a total of six different beverages for you to quaff as we uh, you pick your favorite one as we go through this and enjoy drinking it and i hope i hope you have fun and what i've decided to do is start with the oldest one and kind of move my way forwards so the first one i'm going to talk about is the world's number one favorite beverage or most used beverage water now, what I find fascinating about water is it is such a fundamental thing about humans and it's so important for us and indeed for life as a whole. If you ask scientists who are looking into different places in the solar system and beyond, they will say, you know, if there's liquid water, there's a chance of life. And if there isn't liquid water, maybe there are some other chemicals that kind of do the same thing. It could act as a sort of solvent or solution. But basically, liquid water is how you get everything on planet Earth. And when you get to something like the moon, no liquid water, no life. And I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing here. But the other thing about water is it's so fundamental that it's got a name throughout the world. The more modern the invention or creation or observation, the more the whole world agrees on what it's called. So, for example, something like computer it'll be a very similar word around the world. But with water, water is actually from the Germanic Vasa, but it then's also, if we're from like a romantic country or from Latin, we get aqua, agua. Then we get low in France. Don't know where that one's come. It's most of the other stuff they do is sort of kind of French orientated, not even close there. If we're in Turkey, it's Sioux. It's got completely different names around the world because it's probably one of the first things that local tribes would have named like trees and sky as well. And there is this concept of the threes. I find it interesting. I mean, it's one of these things where, of course, there are exceptions to this. It's a bit more difficult than this. But it's like, if you have your oxygen cut off, you know, maybe you're underwater or something like that, 
if you have no oxygen after three minutes, you're going to die. If you have a problem with your temperature, body temperature, you'll die in about three hours. You know, if you're in a freezing environment, your body will shut down and you will die. And if you don't have liquids, if you don't have water, you will die after three days. And if you don't have food, you'll starve after three weeks. So, like I say, it's not quite as cute as that, but it's an indicator as to how important these things are. Obviously, if I stop your breathing, you're going to die quicker than anything else. But it shows you how quickly your body will break down without water. And as we all know, about 80% of us is water. It's a little bit higher sometimes. So therefore, if we sucked all the water out of you, you'd just be a big pile of dusty chemicals and that would be it. And so that's how important and intrinsic water is to us. With all these other ones I'm going to be mentioning, water is basically there. We need it to survive, to balance. Well, actually what's happening inside us, why dehydration is so dangerous, is because you have chemical reactions. With water, I can get you to hop back to school for two things. Because for your body to work, you need transference of chemicals between one cell and another. And so that's called osmosis, the movement of chemicals through semi-permeable membrane. And basically things move from more concentrated to less concentrated. But if you don't have water in you or not enough water in you, it completely knocks out that osmosis process. And therefore your body just doesn't know what to do and it starts shutting down. So that's why dehydration is dangerous for you. Then, and you're sitting there going, good Lord, he's been talking for five minutes about water. So osmosis is something you learnt at school. The other thing you learnt at school, of course, is the water cycle. You know, the rain clouds sprinkle their rain on the land. It trickles through the fields and mountains into rivers. The river flows out to the sea where the some of the sea is evaporated, which turns into clouds, which then over land turns into rain again. And so it goes around and around and around. And what I find fascinating about that is it means and you, you hear this fact or sort of like in certain places is nobody's making water so for example if you drink a glass of water you'll eventually let's say 12 hours later get rid of that in a form of urination but that's still water but other chemicals and if it goes through a filtration system which could be fields for example and soil or it could be through a sewage plant Basically, what do you get? You still get water. And so, in essence, all the urine and all, all the other chemicals, the urea, all the other things that are happening there are basically get stripped away. Obviously, you can't drink salt water because it's got salt minerals in it, which, again, will whack out your osmosis. That's why drinking salt water is bad for you. So, again, the evaporation gets rid of the minerals, which means it's now pure water again, which means that as the rain descends on you, it's almost pure, but of course it slightly dissolves some of the carbon dioxide in the air as it lands. So it's very, 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 very mild carbolic acid is actually what rain is. Not the same thing as acid rain, which is a big thing in the 1980s from industrial waste. So the point is this, the water that's in you, you're basically borrowing because it's going to leak out of you either through sweat or through, through other orifices over time. And then it goes back into the process and then it will be cycled out again. So the fact is, and I always love this fact, you are drinking the same water that the dinosaurs drank because it's it's not going anywhere. It's just going in a cycle. It's a closed circuit, basically, which is a kind of mind blowing thing. And that means you're drinking 
millions upon millions of years old water. As one friend who used to work for a drinks company said, think about it for a moment. You've got these water percolating through mountains over hundreds of thousands or millions of years and it sort of like comes into a spring and then we bottle it and then we have to put a best before on it. Why? It's already the oldest thing you're ever going to consume. And it's like, that's a really good point. You shouldn't have a best before on water. But of course, it slightly changes once it's been bottled, particularly in plastic. Anyway, moving on. That was, that's just one of six, guys. I've done, <laughs> done about eight minutes on it. Right, moving on. And actually, the second one will be one of the shorter ones. We come to milk. Now, what's interesting is if we're talking about mother's milk, as in breastfeeding a baby, for starters, almost all mammals do that. There are a couple of tiny exceptions. Things like, for example, echidnas and duck-billed platypuses. There's some weird stuff going on in Australia, but generally, the definition of a mammal is basically they have hair and also they are live young, not born in an egg or something like that. Again, I'm looking at you, echidnas and duck-billed platypuses, and they basically are weaned on mother's milk. Now, what happens in the West in particular is we've been using cow and sheep's milk for thousands of years as a nutrient source. But obviously those are designed to be fully nutritious for baby cows and baby sheep. Whereas in the case of a human mother producing milk, that is absolutely designed for humans. It is probably the best thing you could ever drink. I am not about to open up a chain of breast milk shops or something like that. I know that there's a very expensive ice cream that is made with human milk. I don't know whether you're going to go yuck or mm, but it's a thing. And the reality is that what's interesting is when you look at babies, here's the rule, okay? When somebody's just had a baby, they will take a photo of it like one day old. And they are shriveled little prunes and they've just been shoved through very tight space and they're not looking their best. Indeed, when I was born and sort of like all babies, when they're born are kind of grey coloured and basically my father said, looking at me, is he always going to be that funny colour? Which is a valid question to ask, seeing I've been a dad twice over. It does cross your mind. But when a newborn is incredibly frail and skinny and wrinkly and basically it's what you're going to look like when you're 90. Sorry to break that to you. So the point is when you think of babies you think of these chubby little things and you know it looks like they've got rubber bands on their wrists because they've got so much oomph to them so much fat to them and that's really important in terms of development. Please don't think that a baby shouldn't be putting on weight. It should be putting on loads of weight because it's vitally important for its development how does it get such amount of nutrients? Well, basically, the mother's milk is absolutely packed with fat and sugar. And what's interesting is the ratio of fat and sugar there, about two-thirds fat to one-third sugars, is exactly the same for something like a cake or donuts. And so when people say they've got a sweet tooth, like me, I'm well aware of the fact that if you put an actual bowl of sugar next to me, I would feel nothing but put a deliciously glazed donut next to me and oh that is temptation itself okay it's gonna taste fabulous but basically that's our taste buds reminding us of the stuff that we really needed to get into our system in our first year of development 
So, why are you overweight? Why do you crave cakes? Well, blame your mother. Sorry, it always goes back to blaming women. I apologise, but that's what's going on there. So, the thing is that with with mother's milk, and it becomes difficult and horrible, there's so much pressure, and I really have a problem with this, with, like, the NCT classes. You know, there's, like, breast is best, and it's like, well, technically, yes, but some women aren't able to express, and you're starting to make them feel terrible at a time when they're already feeling vulnerable and exhausted that they can't do it, makes them feel less of a woman, and, you know, I've known women who've been through this, and it's horrible and awful, and I say that, be careful. I know it's well-meaning about saying breast is best, but it's a lot more complicated than that. I know one woman who ended up getting a cyst on her breast, which made breastfeeding incredibly painful, and she was sitting there crying in agony, just trying to get some milk into this child, not wanting to use a bottle. But here's the reality of this. If you just stand in your local supermarket, or if you stand in your office and just look around everybody, you don't know who was breastfed and who was bottle-fed, okay? It's a bit of a misnomer. Over the years, things even out, there are other things you can do to mess up your kids. Again, I know, I'm a father. That's the element of human milk, but the great thing about cow's milk or sheep's milk or goat's milk is it's incredibly packed with nutrients, but it does have lactose in it, and human beings are naturally lactose intolerant. Whereas in the West, we went hard on the cheese and the milk for literally tens of thousands of years, less so in Asia, which means naturally human beings are lactose intolerant. In Asia, it is still a quite common thing, whereas in Europe, it is largely being died away. It still exists. There's some people out there who are still lactose intolerant. I'm sorry to hear that. But it did mean that our bloody-minded ancestors would have gone through a period of gassiness and diarrhea and all kinds of stomach cramps and things like that as they kept shoveling down the butter, the cheese, the milk. But it was an easy way to get nutrition. Otherwise, you're going to have to run around trying to hunt a woolly mammoth or something like that. Whereas if you can just wrestle a goat into a corner or into a cave you can just milk it every day it's fine that's actually a much easier way to get so it's one of these things about risk versus reward and i'm going to say thank you whoever the ancestors were that decided to keep going through that because i love myself some cheese okay so that is number two and uh, yeah we're nearly 15 minutes in sorry about that right okay let's move on let's come to the next one which is all to do with the Wardian case. Now, I'm talking about tea. And there is an interesting thing. It doesn't quite work like this. But generally, if you look at the world islands, so this is Africa, Asia, and Europe, rather than the Americas, because, of course, they sort of interacted with the rest later in history. But generally, if tea was brought over land, it's generally called chai or a variation of that. If, however, it got there by ship, it's called tea. It's why it's called te or tea or tea in terms of Europe. It's called chai in Turkey. It's called chai in Central Asia and places like that. It's really interesting. Those are the, basically the two words for the same kind of herbal drink because, face it, you're basically drinking leaves. That's the definition of a herbal tea, in essence. I only found out in 2019 that green tea is the same thing as black tea. It's just younger leaves and just basically processed differently. I thought they were a completely different plant. Which country had a global monopoly on tea? 
answer China. There is a phrase that still kicks around. I wouldn't do it for all the tea in China because China was making a fortune out of tea. Now, the thing is, you can steal a plant and try and take it somewhere else and maybe start growing it. But the problem is stealing seeds is really easy. Seeds are very easy and very sort of like maneuverable, etc. But you then have to start completely from scratch. What's the soil acidity level? How much moisture is needed? How much sunlight is needed? What's the temperature best for it to grow? All these things are hard to work out. So the easiest thing to do is to get a young plant and plant it and start growing it and cloning it from, from that. And that's a lot harder to transport. So what we have in the 19th century is the Wardian case. And the best way to think of it is a cross between a suitcase and a greenhouse. Basically, the British Empire did all kinds of things, but one of the weird things was it was really into its gardening. And so you get somewhere like Kew Gardens in West London, and it has, you know, huge collection of plants from all around the world. Massive greenhouses with incredibly exotic plants from places like Papua New Guinea. It's like, how on earth could that grow in southern England? Well, because some very clever botanists sort of like got involved in it. And yes, the, the greenhouses obviously create a more realistic tropical temperature, for example. So all of that, very clever, very cool. But the Wardian case allowed people to take young plants and actually move them somewhere else and what happened we don't necessarily know the exact details of this but a wardian case was used to transport some young tea plants to india now this is something i've mentioned before in the podcast people talk about the bad things of empire and there are a lot of bad things about empire i'm not trying to sort of like be an apologist for it but like everything in history it's complicated and the fact is india was making zero pounds or zero rupees money out of tea exports in the year 1700. But once the British got their tea plantations up and running, to this day, billions of dollars are made by tea exports from India. And they're actually the descendants of Chinese plants that were brought and set up by British imperialists. None of this is indigenous to India. Do you think the Indians are just going to burn down all their crops? Of course they're not. They make a fortune out of it. So that's the thing about tea. Indeed, there's this theory about tea and the next drink I'm going to come on to, that because people quite often like sugar with it, it was the trigger of the sweet tooth nature of Europe that led to an increase in the slave trade in the Caribbean and in Americas as well. And it's like, that's definitely true, because, of course, what were all these slaves doing growing sugar beet and sugar cane in, in places like Jamaica? And the answer is, well, it was being exported somewhere. It certainly wasn't being used there. And why did they end up getting in slaves rather than just, let's say, agricultural workers from East Anglia and England? The answer is because it was so backbreaking, it was so hard, it was so difficult. So why bother? Because we can make a lot of money from this thing called sugar. And you make even more money if you don't pay the workers, all right? So that's the true crime. Remember that the next time you're filling up a cup of tea. You get companies like Tate and Lyle, stuff like that, still based in Britain. Absolutely, their, their roots come from the slave trade, which leads to a whole complicated conversation about what should we be doing with the profits of these companies today in the 21st century reparations. And it's like, it gets all complicated and murky. And you probably don't think about that when you're drinking a cup of tea. But there is simply nothing more British than a cup of tea. There is a wonderful theory that the reason why we drink tea and Americans tend to love their coffee is because it was a pushback 
against British tea drinking. That was basically colonial. We're going to go our own way, but we still like hot drinks with bits of plant in them, so let's do coffee instead. Which, funnily enough, brings me on to the next one, which is, unsurprisingly, coffee. Now, just before I jump into coffee, actually, I'm going to say two things. First of all, the usual, please click subscribe. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Please tell a friend. Please give us a review. All these things really help. Thank you very much. I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. Love to know your thoughts on what I've been doing. And also, got any suggestions? I'm all ears. That's part one. Part two is you're going, hang on, Gem, I signed up for a podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I'm going to say all of these things are part of pop culture. I find it insane that you can get water out of a tap for free, basically, and yet, what do we do? We keep buying bottles of water. It's this marketing thing, this image thing. Evian is a brand. It's just water. So's Buxton's, for example. Then you get super fancy water, something like Perrier, because it's got bubbles in it. And definitely the stuff coming out of your tap should not be having bubbles in it. That's at least a bit different. But does it taste any better? I personally, I, I most people I know don't like fizzy water. It actually doesn't feel very refreshing on your tongue if you drink it too fast like you might drink water you end up burping it's just i don't like it there's that and then with milk what's interesting is generally there aren't brands of milk until you get things like cravendale in britain other countries have your own brands sort of like luxury milk whatever that is and then of course any of these vegetarian slash vegan substitutes they're all called milk, almond milk, coconut milk, etc. Soya milk. It's like, no, if you get a nut and you manage to squeeze any kind of moisture out of it, we would call that juice. 
But you know what? Nut juice doesn't sound as appealing as almond milk, okay? I think we understand. So there's a consideration to the branding going on there, which is part of pop culture. Marketing is the 20th and 21st century story that just keeps going and going and going. So you get the idea. And the same thing with tea. You get one of the most popular brands in Britain of tea is Yorkshire Tea. Literally, I was having a conversation with somebody about this a couple of days ago, and I said, you know, why is it called Yorkshire Tea? We all know it isn't grown in Yorkshire, but Yorkshire Tea is the British tea. And like during wars and things like that, Britons will still want imports of tea. It's what keeps us going here. So yeah, there are brands of tea. And now we move on to coffee and how that sort of revolutionized the world. Now, the earliest stories, and these are unverifiable about coffee, is that we are in Ethiopia, which seems to be where coffee comes from, which might surprise you thinking, hang on, I thought that these might be South American because we keep hearing about the great Colombian coffee. Well, this is all part of the Colombian exchange, not the country, but Christopher Columbus, basically when he opened up trade routes between the Americas and Europe and the rest of the world, it meant that we got things like potatoes and the Americas got things like horses and coffee. It was the biggest exchange of animals and vegetables and plants ever known in the whole of, of human history. So that's the whole thing. And that's how coffee ends up in South America. But it's also how potatoes end up being in somewhere like Ireland. Okay. And so we're in Ethiopia and basically priests were mixing local berries with hot water and they found it refreshing. It gave them a bit more energy. We're talking around about the 1400s here. And we're sort of into, well, actually the 1300s, I should say. We're into the 1400s when we actually get more evidence of it being used on the Arabian Peninsula, particularly in the south, just opposite Ethiopia, in Yemen, where we have Islamic sort of Sufis and priests, etc., mullahs, and so on and so forth, drinking coffee. Because it's obviously not allowed in the Quran for people to drink alcohol. But people still want a bit of a kick, a bit of a pep to it. And so it actually starts becoming a big deal in Islamic culture. And then, not to get too technical about this, but if we are in the 1400s, it's not going to take long until we've got the Ottoman Empire into this area here, and Turkish coffee, which is actually have an Ottoman origin, which Ottomans and Turks are not necessarily the same thing. In fact, usually they're not the same thing. But Turkish coffee, you all kind of know what I mean about that. It's very thick. It's rocket fuel, as some people say. It's espresso with a hairy chest, etc. But I love the fact that the Ottomans' forces, particularly in the 1500s, were kind of renowned throughout Europe about being effective night fighters, you know, perhaps attacking a castle at night time. But when you consider that in Europe, the standard drink at the end of a day was beer and maybe watered down wine, or possibly just wine as it was, so you're on a bit of a mellow buzz. Meanwhile, you've got the attacking Ottoman forces sucking down basically espressos, I mean, it's hardly a fair fight when you start putting it like that. It's very much a stimulant. Now, for the record, there is this argument about what has more caffeine in it. Is it tea or is it coffee? And the answer is a ton of tea will have more caffeine in it than a ton of coffee beans. But obviously, tea goes a lot further. If you have a bag of tea, it 
hardly weighs anything, so therefore there's hardly any caffeine in it. And you can just tell. Drink a cup of tea and then drink a cup of coffee, a flat white or something, and you can tell which one gives you more of a buzz. But the thing about caffeine is you do grow resistant to it. So, yeah, that's why you start chugging down more and more of this stuff. And you get some people saying, I can't start the day without a cup of coffee. I mean, that's a form of addiction, basically. I mean, it shouldn't destroy you or anything like that. But then coffee houses and coffee shops, these things were sometimes banned in Europe and sometimes in the Ottoman Empire. When talking about the 1700s, because they were seen as a place of political gatherings and potential revolutionary ideas. So coffee was dangerous in the 1700s. And then by the time you get to the 20th century, coffee's basically being consumed around the world in all different types of way. And it's actually, from the 1980s onwards, very much starting in America and then moving across, is you get the idea of things like Starbucks and the, the coffee shop again. But now this is very much high-end coffee. Of course, what's ironic is coffee prices in the last 10 years have pretty much crashed but that has in no way changed the extremely expensive latte that you're buying from a Costa or a Nero or a Starbucks. Other brands are available, okay? So coffee is probably the most heavily branded of all of these sort of generic natural drinks that I so far mentioned. Because when I say Starbucks, you have something in your mind. And even if you get to something like the Ukraine war, when Starbucks moved out of Russia, you know, in protest... That was newsworthy. You know, there's there's no stories about water or milk, for example, or even tea. And the Russians do like tea, for the record. But generally, in Asia, they consider the Europeans, particularly the British, ruined tea. Because if you look at Turkish tea, Turkey, Turkey's an interesting crossroads here. Because they drink coffee in their own unique way. And they drink tea in the way that Asia generally does. It's actually quite stewed. And you don't add any milk. It's in a little glass cup. And you basically put a sugar cube in it or something like that. That would be a typical way to imbibe some Turkish tea. And then, what do you mean you're pouring milk into it? That's just it's a completely different drink. And you've lowered the temperature. Blah, kind of thing. But you try taking away from any true Brit a builder's tea and there will be trouble. And I guess it's the same thing in America with coffee. To a certain extent, I need my coffee, cup of coffee. Now, interestingly, you see in American movies... They have this kind of elaborate filter system which slowly drips coffee in the water through a filter and then it slowly fills up this glass jug of coffee and it's like, you do not have that in Britain or Europe. Here, we just run a kettle. In fact, you never even see kettles being used in America and the reason for that is their voltage is too low. Kettles do technically work, but if you think they take a long time in Britain, they take about double the time in America. So it's like, in that time, we might as well find a different way to make these hot drinks. And I always remember on YouTube, there was a woman who went, here's a top tip. Here's a proper American woman saying, here's a way to make a proper British cup of tea. There's a huge argument about, do you put the water in first or do you put the milk in first? But what she then did, she basically put the tea bag in, she put some normal water in, she then stuck it all in the microwave. And just all the comments from the British underneath sort of say, this is a crime against humanity. So Americans, you're great at coffee. You stay away from tea, okay? But sticking with America, now we come into brands. And so here's a question for you. What is the world's most recognizable brand? What do you think? Maybe put me on hold as you try and write it down. Well, clearly it's not Apple because I'm talking about drinks. Although apple juice, maybe. That's not a brand. The answer is the most recognizable brand in the world is 
Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola is a fascinating company. In fact, Coca-Cola is actually going to cover up the last two drinks that we're talking about. It was started in 1886 by John Pemberton in Atlanta, Georgia. So we're talking about a generation after the end of the U.S. Civil War. Places like Atlanta were still being rebuilt in the 1880s. It was a poor part of America. But what Coca-Cola was inadvertently is part of this whole trend in the late 1800s. In the time of the Wild West, you might get what was referred to as a snake oil salesman. And they would basically come into town, you see this in lots of different movies, where they will proudly put a bottle with a fancy label on a table and they will call it something, you know, like Dr. Maynard's Elixir of Vitality or something like that. Pirelli's Miracle that's what did the trick, sir, true, sir, true. And they would sell a whole bottle. They would, it would cure everything. You know, it would sort of cure rheumatoid arthritis. It would cure baldness. It would cure gout. It would cure, I don't know, crippling diseases, worms, etc. You could use it as a floor polish and, you know, everything. And basically what they would do, I actually met somebody who did a PhD in these. And just like the fancier the bottle, the more people thought it would be worth the money. And obviously every single snake oil salesperson would put something different in it, but it had to taste at least kind of medicinal. So usually it had some grain alcohol in it, it probably had a lot of water in it, and then maybe a few other bits and bobs into it just to give you a certain feeling of pep. And there was the idea that these things were always so potent so you'd only have a couple of spoonfuls, but obviously this was enough to keep people off your case while you did your business for maybe a day or two and then went on your way to the next town and the next bunch of suckers, if you like. But this idea of, like, science being involved with drinks and we therefore get these kind of sodas and, and things like that. And congratulations, John Pemberton came up with Coca-Cola and it is well known and it is indeed true that the original formula did indeed include cocaine, which certainly does give you a bit of a pick-me-up, but also the sugar's going to do that too, as does the caffeine. So there's a whole lot of things there to keep you awake at night. But I think it's worth pointing out the cocaine levels were extraordinarily low. It wasn't sort of like, you know, absolutely dripping with the stuff. Also, it's worth pointing out that at the time, it was a legal substance, so there wasn't anything Pemberton was doing wrong. But it was later on became a restricted substance, and they did have to remove it, but they kept the name. And actually, the thing that people don't know is once you remove a stimulant, you've actually got less of a pick-me-up. It's a less good product, in essence. And so, actually, Coca-Cola was told off by basically the advertising ethics authorities in America because they were implying that there was a new ingredient that was basically as good but not cocaine, which actually demonstrably was not true. So Coca-Cola had a slightly murky past, but then again, all brands in the 1800s started in a slightly weird and wonderful way, and it's absolutely now a sort of clear-cut favourite around the world. If you're going to guess if Coca-Cola is the number one brand, soft drinks brand, can you guess what the number two soft drinks brand around the world is? Again, I'll just pause for a moment. The answer is, no, Pepsi's number three. Number two is Diet Coke. And so, yes, Pepsi cries a little bit there. Anyway, the point with Coca-Cola is it was very much an American drink. What made it the global powerhouse that it was? And the irony was World War II. Because soldiers, in theory, and I emphasize the theory, shouldn't be drinking alcohol. 
drunk men and guns isn't a good combination. And so, basically, the Coca-Cola company, while they had started distributing in other countries, they actually increased production in foreign countries and some countries they'd never operated in before to basically keep the Coca-Colas coming to the, the U.S. troops around the world. Indeed, my American grandfather, who served in the Navy in World War II, he remembers being able to buy Coca-Colas in places like Shanghai, and, you know, that's kind of an amazing statement for the 1940s. He also commented that they were more expensive as well than beers, I should say. So uh, he has a whole bunch of stories of trying to get his crew members of his minesweeping ship back onto, you know, off, they've, had their, they've had their shore leave, they're a bunch of young men, they're in Shanghai, and his job is trying to round them up and get them back on the ship. You can imagine that was quite a challenging thing for him. Anyway, let's move on. So, yes, Coca-Cola basically became this powerhouse because of World War II, and afterwards, they just kept going. As I said, they're the most recognizable brand in the world, but they still spend hundreds of millions of dollars around the globe to remind people to drink Coca-Cola because they know that there are always other options. So, with that in mind, we're going to move on to the last one, which is also linked to Coca-Cola. Because, as I mentioned, World War II, and I said they were in some markets. And at this point, I do feel obliged to point out that Max Keith was the basically the head of Coca-Cola in Germany. I think you might know where this is going. Once we start getting into World War II, America, while it was neutral at the beginning of it, obviously understood that some bad things were happening and also just shipping stuff across the Atlantic was extremely dangerous because U-boats. So, for a number of practical and political and moral reasons, basically, the US Coca-Cola company stopped sending the syrup, the secret ingredients that make Coca-Cola, to Germany. So Max Keith had a problem there, and I do feel obliged to point out that Max himself may have been German, but he was never a member of the Nazi party, okay? So Coca-Cola is in no way associated with the Nazis, and they're just running a business. Let's face it, I mean, there's nothing as basically as harmless as just, you know, running a soft drinks company. This wasn't an arms manufacturer or anything like that. They had a perfectly good factory but no product to sell. Everything worked fine. They still had the carbonating machines. They still were able to, to source the water. They just didn't have any flavor. And again, as I've already said at the beginning, carbonated water is just a lousy drink. I'm sorry about that. So basically, they got together and came up with their own synthesized kind of flavor. It also had a coloring with it as well. And so the whole thing was a sort of orange drink. And it looked kind of orange, and it tasted sugary and orangey, and they then had to come up with a name for it. And so Max, with his, or basically the board says, you know, you've got to come up with a name for it. This is all in German. He goes, you've got to use your imaginations. And the German word for imagination is fantasy. And so somebody said, let's abbreviate that. Let's call it Fanta. And so the final bit here is World War II, there's so many more important things than this going on in World War II, but it's just a weird quirk that during lulls in fighting, an American soldier would sit down and drink a Coke, and a German soldier, maybe on the other side of the battlefield, would sit down and drink a Fanta. And technically, they came from the same company. And indeed, 
after the war, basically Max was able to turn around to the Coca-Cola company and going, hey, look, I've created a whole new brand for you. And so that is why Fanta, which looks so different to Coca-Cola, does say Coca-Cola company up on the label. And indeed, they work hand in glove and you can now get Fanta grape and all these other delicious flavors. So, look, again, I'm not sponsored by any of these people. If Fanta or Coke want to send me any stuff, then, yeah, I'd love to. You know, I'm a big fan, particularly of Diet Coke. and love some of that. Also, I like Fanta as well, provided it's sugar-free. Anyway, so we've actually covered a total of six different drinks. We've come from before humans even existed with water. We've covered the problems of drinking milk. Sorry about that. Then we've moved on to the imperial nature of tea, the Islamic nature of coffee, and then the World War II-y nature of Coca-Cola and Fanta. So come on, you can see there's a lot of actual pop culture and just culture around the world involved in this particular episode. This is another unusual one. I occasionally do ones on like food and drink. Love to get your thoughts if you like this one. I could always do more with that. And as always, there'll be another episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.